0: This is History 2311, Week 11B, The Roaring Nineties. Uh huh, ladies. Now, what y'all wanna do? Wanna be ballers, shot callers, brawlers, we'll booby In the bins with the spoilers on the low from the Jake and the Taurus. Trying to get my hands on some grants like Horace. Yeah, living the raw deal. Three course meals spaghetti, fettuccine, and veal. But still, everything's real in the field. And what you can't have now, leave when you will. Not me for trying to bury seven zeros over in Rio de Janeiro. Ain't nobody's hero, but I want to be heard on your hot nine seven every day. That's my word. Swimming in women with their own condominiums, five plus fives who drop millenniums. It's all about the Benjamin's. What I get a fifty pound bag of ooh for the muds. So, what do I mean by the roaring nineties? Usually, of course, the term is the Roaring Twenties, and that label, the Roaring Twenties, refers to the way the 1920s were a decade of rapid economic growth, a decade of prosperity, although not equality, uh, a decade of new technology, and also a kind of lively and uninhibited culture and a loosening of social codes. I'm not sure when I first heard the term roaring 90s, but as soon as I did, it seemed exactly apt. I mean, superficially, the styles or the look of the 1990s did not resemble the styles or look of the 1920s. But in deeper structural ways, there are similarities. There are a lot of ways the 90s were another roaring decade. Like the 20s, the 90s were a decade of prosperity and growth but also of rising inequality. Like the 20s, the 90s were a period of rapid and really profound technological change with new inventions, new media, especially, and new consumer goods. In foreign affairs, both decades were periods of apparent peace and stability that allowed Americans to concentrate on domestic issues and focus largely not even on political issues, but on cultural ones. I say a decade of apparent peace and stability, uh, but in the 90s, as in the 20s, the rest of the world was not necessarily peaceful. In politics, in both decades, political debate largely was subordinated to the priorities and desires of business. In the 1920s, they said, business is king. In the 1990s, they said, the free market is king. It's all about the Benjamins. In culture, both decades saw a loosening of restrictions and really lively, popular culture marked by the arrival of new voices and really by a multiplicity of different voices. And finally, both decades ended in a crash, the stock market crash of 1929 and a series of economic crises in the early 2000s, a kind of economic reckoning that in a way we are still living through today. So my outline for the next 30, 40 minutes looks like this. I want to talk about neoliberalism, this thorny, controversial phrase that describes the paradigm we are still in. I want to talk about the new Democrats, that is to say, the Clinton Democrats and the ways that the Democratic Party shifted in this period. We need to talk about the new economy, the alleged new economy created by uh, high technology computers and the internet and also by globalization and freer trade around the world. Not everyone was happy with this new paradigm, so I want to talk about some of the critiques of globalization. And finally, I'll say a little bit about the popular culture of the period and the politics of culture. Just like the 1920s, the 1990s are remembered as a period of a kind of culture war. Although, as you'll see, I have some skepticism about this framing. But first, what is neoliberalism? The end of the Cold War and the collapse of communism at the end of the 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s, seemed justifiably to be a vindication of free market capitalism. Hadn't capitalism won the Cold War? The spectacle of McDonald's restaurants opening in Moscow or Western fashion boutiques opening in Beijing, things that were unheard of in the Cold War days, seemed like confirmation that capitalism had won world over. In 1989, even before the fall of the Berlin Wall, the historian Francis Fukuyama published an instantly famous or infamous essay called The End of History. Fukuyama said, that if we understand history as a struggle between competing ideologies or political systems, then history itself might be at an end. Now, this essay was immediately much attacked and lambasted, and and Fukuyama was largely misunderstood. He was not saying that history itself, in the sense that history is just things happening, uh, was at an end. What Fukuyama was saying is that in 1989, it was very hard to imagine any viable alternatives to liberal democracy and capitalism. And in a narrow sense, he wasn't wrong. It was hard to imagine alternatives. There absolutely are alternatives, but they were difficult in that historical moment to imagine. Another famous quote from this era that I think about all the time, It is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. I've attributed it here to Frederick Jameson, but there's a couple of people that it gets attached to. The end of the Cold War made it very hard to imagine that there would ever be anything else other than capitalism. Sure, we might destroy ourselves, we might burn the planet, but reform capitalism, no, can't be done. I talked a few weeks ago about the changing meanings of the word liberalism. Uh, Moving from classical liberalism in the 19th century to New Deal liberalism in the 30s and 40s, Cold War liberalism in the 50s and 60s. And you really can't understand uh, the 90s or our current world without reckoning with this idea of neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism is a loaded word. It's a fighting word because the people and the forces that it describes don't really admit that it exists. I think your textbook uses the phrase market fundamentalism instead, but neoliberalism is a word we need because American capitalism today is not the same as the capitalism of the New Deal years or the Eisenhower years or even the Nixon years, and we need a word to name the difference. The term neoliberalism seems to imply a return to classical laissez-faire liberalism. I mean, literally, it just means new liberalism, but The paradigm that I think took hold in the 1980s and 1990s, and still is very powerful today, is a kind of classical liberalism on steroids. The French philosopher Michel Foucault called neoliberalism a reprogramming of liberalism that makes every aspect of society subject to the logic of the free market. And I like that reference to reprogramming, computer programming as if it's the shell of the old idea being used in a new way. And I illustrate it here with an image from The Matrix, a classic phantasmagoria of 90s neoliberalism, a movie that plays with the idea that nothing is real but computer code, nothing is real but the flow of data and capital. And that's a very 1990s sentiment. Under neoliberalism, all social activity, as I said, becomes governed by the logic of the market. Back in the 1920s, Calvin Coolidge said, the business of the American people is business. In the 1990s, it became popular to imagine every aspect of human activity as a kind of business, as subject to the laws of the free market. People would say government should be run like a business, but they also said schools should be run like businesses and churches and mosques and synagogues should be run like businesses and charities should be run like businesses. And businesses should be run uh, so as to maximize shareholder value. They, They should have no other goals. Under neoliberalism, things that might have nothing to do with the generation of wealth, things like learning or dating or love and relationships or parenting or exercising or health and wellness, all these things under neoliberalism get quantified, gamified, subjected to market metrics governed with market techniques and practices. Under neoliberalism, people are trained to think of themselves as brands, as human capital, the brand called you. People are constantly exhorted to tend to their own present and future economic value. Monetize your hobbies, market yourself, be an influencer. We are all told to be selling all the time. And that's my best explanation of what neoliberalism is a world in which we are free of everything except the market. The economy is everything, the market is everything, and everything else recedes. My best evidence for the rise of a neoliberal consensus, in the United States at least, is the rise of the new Democrats and the presidency of Bill Clinton. I've said a number of times now that you can think of American politics in the 20th century, you can divide it into really three broad periods. That first third of the century, Republican dominance up until 1932, then the New Deal order from 1932 to around 1968 with Democratic dominance, and the final third of the century where the Republicans returned to dominance from Nixon in 68 up to Obama in 2008. You can see here that the Democratic Party was really in the wilderness in the 1980s. Look at those three elections, Reagan in 1980, in 1984, and Bush in 88. Not a lot of blue on any of those maps. After the 1988 election, in which Reagan's former Vice President George H.W. Bush won a landslide victory over Michael Dukakis, the third big Republican victory in a row, A group within the Democratic Party who called themselves New Democrats, no relation to the Canadian New Democratic Party, by the way. This group formed an organization called the Democratic Leadership Council. And these New Democrats were centrist, often Southern, although not always, Democrats, who argued that the Democratic Party had to move to the right, particularly on economic issues, if they were ever going to win elections again. They said, Look, the old New Deal Great Society Coalition is no more. Unions are in tatters. The white working class now votes for Republicans. The new right has turned the word liberal into an epithet, an insult. Also the center of wealth and population has moved from the industrial Northeast, South and West to the Sunbelt. And so the politicians and planners that made up the new Democratic Leadership Council argued that the party had to stop nominating liberal Northerners like Walter Mondale, who lost to Reagan in 84, or Michael Dukakis, who lost to George Bush in 88. The way to win, they said, was to move the party to the right. That was the claim. Another explanation would be that American politics is very expensive and the Democratic Party was struggling with the need to court corporate donors, to woo corporate and financial interests without wholly abandoning uh, its popular base. So the Democrats needed a kind of a corporate friendly brand of liberalism, a brand of liberalism that Wall Street and Goldman Sachs could get behind. However you wanna think of it, the Democratic Leadership Council of the DLC found their guy in 1992 with Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was a perfect politician for America in the 1990s because he combined liberalism on social issues with conservatism on economic ones. On social issues, he was really a child of the 1960s. He supported abortion rights. He was a feminist. He supported gay rights. He supported affirmative action for racial minorities. He famously admitted that he had smoked marijuana but claimed he had never inhaled. It's funny, this already seems like a kind of quaint propriety of another era, like the legend, I don't think it's true, but the legend that the Victorians would put skirts on tables since naked table legs were too suggestive. There's something of that in Clinton's claim about marijuana. Anyway, on all these cultural and social issues, Clinton reflected the changes of the last few decades. And it was pretty easy for him to make George H.W. Bush seem out of touch with ordinary Americans. The great African-American writer, Tony Morrison, called Clinton our first Black president. Now, I should clarify, this was not actually because Clinton was the greatest ally of African Americans. I mean, he was popular with them, but he wasn't a super staunch ally. Morrison was sort of joking about Clinton's good old boy, working class, junk food and McDonald's loving image. McDonald's is kind of a theme of this lecture, which you're gonna see. But the real reason she called Clinton the first Black president, which people often forget, she was actually talking about the Whitewater investigation, which became the Monica Lewinsky investigation. She was talking about how ferociously Clinton's enemies pursued him. Morrison said Clinton was, quote, Black because his enemies judged him guilty until proven innocent. So it was his persecution in a metaphorical sense that made him, quote, Black. This persecution, the hatred that Clinton earned from Republicans, and they really did hate him, is interesting and ironic because on economic issues, Clinton could have been a Reagan Democrat. Certainly his political heart was in the transformative power of free markets. Clinton's big achievement in his first term was the passage of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which created a free trade zone between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. NAFTA was actually originally negotiated by George Bush but was then blocked in Congress, blocked by Democrats, who said that free trade would send jobs to Mexico, who were worried about environmental protection and so on. When Clinton came to power, he reversed the Democratic position on NAFTA and got it through Congress with the help of many Republicans. And advancing and protecting a global free trade economy became the most consistent foreign policy note of Clinton's administration. This embrace of free trade alienated some old democratic groups, especially labor unions. But Clinton calculated that labor unions were no longer that significant politically. There were fewer union members, there were fewer unionized jobs, and a lot of the white working class was voting for Republicans anyway. Clinton led the push to create the World Trade Organization in 1995, and later to bring China into the WTO. He said that by freeing up American trade with China, the Chinese would import American products and they would also import one of democracy's most cherished values, he said, economic freedom. I'm not certain it worked out that way. China exports a lot more than they import today. And whatever they do import from the United States, I don't think it has included a whole lot of American democracy or freedom. As the Democrats moved away from union support, or at least took union support for granted, Clinton brought a new group into the Democratic fold, Wall Street investment bankers. The 1990s were a decade in which the finance sector reigned supreme. The financial industry, investment banks, stockbrokers, currency markets did very well in the 1990s, and they gave a lot of money to Clinton Democrats and had a lot of influence in his White House. This graph shows the profits of the financial industry as a share of all US business profits. I mean, look at that, at the end of the decade, almost half the profits to be made in all business was going to one industry, the financial industry. The best metaphor I've heard for finance in the 1990s is that it was like a bug or an exploit in a computer game and uh, gamers will know what I'm talking about. Sometimes there is an unintended way of exploiting a computer game. Not, not necessarily cheating because the game allows it, but unintended in a way that makes playing the regular game moot. And finance in the 1990s was sort of like that. The, the level of money that could be made in finance distorted the whole rest of the economy. It is significant and symbolic that in the Clinton administration, the treasury department, grew to have more clout than the State Department. The most influential member of Clinton's cabinet was not his Secretary of State, who was first Warren Christopher and later Madeleine Albright, but probably his Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Rubin. And here we see Clinton's big three economic advisors, Robert Rubin, Alan Greenspan, and Larry Summers, all of whom were originally Wall Street investment bankers. In this Time magazine cover calls them the three marketeers, haha, and says beautifully ironically, they have prevented a global economic meltdown so far. You can, you can almost hear the wah-wah if you know what is to come. Clinton's embrace of free market economics, and the American Democratic Party is sometimes called the world's second most enthusiastic defender of the free market, demonstrates the intellectual triumph of neoliberalism. In a two-party system, policies always swing back and forth, but, but policies really become permanent when the other party acquiesces to them. In other words, when the opposition comes into power, if it doesn't change the things the previous government did or the things it doesn't change, those are the things that essentially become permanent. Bill Clinton was to the Reagan revolution sort of as Eisenhower was to the New Deal, When Eisenhower, when the Republicans under Eisenhower came back into power after the New Deal, Eisenhower did not roll back most of the New Deal programs. He accepted them and in so doing, he kind of rendered them permanent or pretty close to permanent. And in the same way, Clinton accepted many of Reagan's policies and premises, his tax cuts, his social program cuts, and in so doing, he kind of made them permanent. In 1981, Reagan said, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. In 1996, Bill Clinton declared, the era of big government is over. The two men got along just fine. Clinton made deficit reduction a priority. He privatized government services, he cut government spending, both military and domestic spending, and in doing that, he achieved what Reagan never actually did, Clinton balanced the budget. He also promised to, quote, end welfare as we know it. And in 1996, Clinton did abolish aid to families with dependent children, which was one of the largest New Deal programs remaining. It gave government aid to low-income families. And it's significant, I think, that it was killed by a Democratic Party administration. Now, to give Clinton his due, these were good economic times. In the 1990s, growth soared to levels never seen before. The stock market shot way, way up. Look at the 1990s part of this graph. And at the same time, unemployment went down. Here's a graph showing the unemployment rate from 1980 up to almost the present. Unions and people in the labor movement all said that NAFTA was going to destroy American jobs, but actually something like 10 million new jobs were created during Clinton's first term and 8 million more during his second. You see on this graph that unemployment went down all through the 1990s. By 2000, unemployment was below 4%, a figure that had not been seen since the 1960s. As I record this in March, 2021, I think the unemployment rate is like 6% in the United States, something like 9% in Canada, down from a terrifying peak of almost 15% in the first months of the COVID pandemic. You can see that spike on the very far right of this graph. As the stock market shot up and up in the 1990s, Just like in the 1920s, experts proclaimed that there was a new economy, somehow freed from the limitations of the old economy, that recessions were a thing of the past, that free trade and American style capitalism were going to bring prosperity to the whole world, and that the Dow was just gonna keep going up and up forever. Now, as historians, we are skeptical of such claims, but the optimism did have a number of sources. With the end of the Cold War, the concept of globalization kind of took the Cold War's place as Americans' main framework for thinking about the world. George H.W. Bush called it the new world order, but uh, that was way too sinister sounding to stick. In the 1990s, everybody started talking about globalization, about interconnected global commerce and the breakdown of barriers to trade. By this, they meant the global spread of free market capitalism and a set of international regimes that made it very easy for large corporations to move money and information, capital, and even human capital around the planet. As a historian, I have to point out that trade has actually been global for centuries. People have always traded all around the world, but the speed and volume of global commerce certainly seemed new in the 1990s, and the heady economic growth of the era made globalization seem good to most Americans, or certainly to most American elites. Another maybe more concrete reason for talking about a new economy was computers and the internet. The first home computers or personal computers appeared in the 1970s. Computer use really exploded in the 1980s. Here's a delightful ad for the Apple II computer, which was my family's first computer. The text says, clear the kitchen table and plug in your color TV. What I like about this ad is that the guy using the computer is not looking at the screen, but staring intently at the keyboard, which suggests to me that he had perhaps not yet made a personal computer a big part of his life. But while many homes had computers, isolated computers in the 1980s, computer use really exploded and was transformed in the 1990s with the commercialization and popularization of the internet. The internet was actually born in the 1960s at a time when powerful computers were still very large and rare and expensive. Generally, only the government, the military, and universities had computers of any size. And researchers who wanted to use these machines had to book time on them months in advance. So people set about finding ways to connect computers together to share their processing power. The ARPANET, which is the foundation of today's internet, went online in October, 1969. At the time it connected all of four computers, three in California and one at the University of Utah. In the 1970s, the ARPANET grew and other similar networks were established. And eventually those networks started interconnecting and people started speaking of a network of networks, an inter-network, or internet for short. In the 1980s, control of this internet passed from military and government bodies to scientific university ones uh, like the National Science Foundation. And then in the 1990s, the internet was opened up to public and commercial uses. The computer, which had been a machine for information processing, now became a powerful communication device And that has had an immense impact on all of our lives. The internet expanded the flow of information and communication more radically than maybe any invention since the printing press. It made it possible, at least theoretically possible, for anyone with a computer and an internet connection to reach a global audience almost instantly. What that meant and what impact it had was not clear, and I think in these two magazine covers you can see both the excitement and the fear of this strange new world. Back in the 1950s and 60s, computers had been seen as the ultimate symbols of bureaucracy and dehumanization, and particularly of the military industrial complex. The computer was the tool of Big Brother, of mechanization and oppression. But there was actually a lot of cross-fertilization between the 60s counterculture and the early computer industry, especially in the Bay Area of California. And by the 1990s, the cultural meaning of computers had really been flipped. In the 90s, people talked about computers in language that sounded like 60s radicalism. They described computers as instruments of revolution. And the classic example of this was Wired Magazine, a San Francisco-based magazine that wedded faith in technology to countercultural style, to free market politics. Wired's slogan was, information wants to be free. The new economy tech guys of this era argued that the internet could not be regulated. Not that it shouldn't be, but that it couldn't be. That technology was an irresistible force that proved the futility of government regulation. I mean, never mind that both computers and the internet were created by governments. They became totems of free market ideology and, and of neoliberalism. The internet was also twinned in everybody's mind with globalization. Globalization moves money around, the internet moves information around. The two seem to be faces of the same phenomenon. And the spread of computers and the internet seemed to prove that globalization and the triumph of the free market were inevitable. And it was hard to argue with that in the 1990s. It was especially hard to argue with the huge fortunes being made in the new high-tech economy. As I showed you, the Dow Jones Index soared to record highs, breaking 10,000 for the first time in March, 1999. And the NASDAQ, which is shown here, which is a different stock index, more heavily weighted to new technology companies, basically went vertical in these years. It increased in value five times between 1998 and 1999. And a boom or a bubble like that exerts a real gravity on people's thinking. In the 1990s, you felt like a sucker if you didn't have money in the new economy. In fact, you started to feel like a sucker if you didn't have your own dot-com startup. But what goes up usually comes down. And another way the 1990s was like the 1920s is that the roaring prosperity of the new economy, in retrospect, concealed some significant weaknesses. I've been talking for a couple of weeks now about deindustrialization, the decline of uh, American manufacturing industries, the auto industry, the steel and coal industry, especially in the area now known as the Rust Belt. The Northeast, the Great Lakes, the Midwest states. All of this applies to Ontario too, by the way, and particularly London, Ontario. We have much the same de-industrialized profile. It is true, as I said before, that the absolute number of jobs in America increased in the 1990s, but that growth concealed a shift. As factories moved uh, to Mexico and then to China and India, those high paying stable union jobs disappeared and were replaced largely with minimum wage temporary service sector jobs and there is a big difference between a permanent union job with say general motors and a part time minimum wage job as a greeter at walmart here's my favorite graph once again and here right now i want you to notice that the 1980s and the 1990s are all of a piece in which the rich get richer and the poor do not Employment became more tenuous in this period. Under neoliberalism, globalization means that workers compete for jobs with workers all over the world. And this produces downward pressure on wages all over the world because there's almost always someone somewhere who will work cheaper. One result of this is that increases in productivity did not go into wages, but into dividends and profits. This graph is showing that workers are producing more and more, but not seeing that in their compensation. And just like the story I told about the 1920s, a lot of these profits were moving out of what we might call uh, the productive industrial sectors of the economy into more speculative financial sector. I said that Wall Street and the financial sector gave generously to Clinton and the new Democrats. And in return, the Clinton government relaxed its regulation of the financial sector. In 1999, Congress famously repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, which was part of the Banking Act of 1933, passed in the first days of uh, the FDR administration to stop the banking crisis and also to prevent it from happening again. Glass-Steagall separated retail banking from investment banking. In other words, it separated the banks that ordinary Americans put their money in from banks that invest in stocks and real estate and take larger risks. And by repealing Glass-Steagall, Clinton opened the door for the financial sector to make huge profits, unprecedented profits, but also for them to engage in ever more risky, aggressive transactions. The Clinton government and especially the state governments in the 1990s also deregulated the energy industry, the telecommunications industry, and opened the door to the consolidation of these industries in fewer and fewer hands. Also opened the door to outright fraud, really serious fraud at banks like Citigroup and energy firms like Enron, and also just a much higher level of volatility. After the dot-com crash in 2000, 2001, a lot of people said, oh, well, the bubbles popped and now we're back to normal. But actually what we've seen since 2000, and you can sort of see it on this graph, is far more volatility. There's an economic crash or crisis every few years. You've probably heard of the dot-com bubble of 2001 and the real estate crisis of 2008. But there was also the Irish banking crisis, the Russian financial crisis, the Icelandic financial crisis, the Greek debt crisis, the energy crisis of 2003, the energy crisis of 2005. They just come more and more faster than usual. It's actually quite reminiscent of the late 19th century, the panic of 1873, 1877, and so on. It wasn't always like this, and I would argue it doesn't have to be. Now, there was protest against globalization and financialization and the new world order and so on, but it was often on the political margins. In the 1992 election, both Bush and Clinton were supporters of NAFTA, which created an opportunity for an eccentric billionaire named Ross Perot to run an energetic third-party campaign almost entirely built around hostility to NAFTA. In 1999, hostility to globalization erupted in massive protests at the World Trade Organization conference in Seattle, the so-called Battle in Seattle, where 40,000 protesters came together and pretty effectively shut down the conference, blocking barricading streets, preventing delegates from getting to their hotels. But it must be said that most Americans experienced the 1990s as a peaceful time. And as in the 1920s, uh, Americans didn't pay a whole lot of attention to foreign affairs in these years. Another artifact of this era was Thomas Friedman's Golden Arches Theory of Peace. Friedman argued in 1996, he claimed that no two countries that both have a McDonald's had ever fought a war against each other. This is kind of a variation of Fukuyama saying we've reached the end of history. Friedman wasn't claiming that McDonald's has prevented war, He was saying that if a country was prosperous enough and integrated enough in the capitalist system to have a McDonald's, then it would have no reason to war with any other country in that capitalist system. Now this turned out not to be true. To take just one example, NATO forces bombed Serbia in 1999 and there are a half dozen other examples of countries with McDonald's as going to war, but it was an appealing, if dumb, idea and a very 90s idea. For the most part, Americans enjoyed the decade after the Cold War as a respite from world affairs. A survey in 1998 found that only 3% of Americans ranked foreign policy as their primary political concern. And when Americans were asked to name the biggest foreign policy problem facing the United States today, the most popular response was, I don't know. Another way the 1990s were like the 1920s was culturally. In both decades, we see a period of relative homogeneity followed by a period of real creativity and plurality. The 1990s was characterized by a remix culture. This idea is not unique to the 1990s, but if I was going to identify one characteristic of 90s popular culture, it might be this a self-referential culture. In other words, movies like the movies of Quentin Tarantino stuffed with allusions to other movies or TV shows like the Simpsons that knew they were TV shows and that commented archly on the conventions of TV shows within them or music built from the ground up out of samples of other music. Hip hop records in the 1980s and 1990s used hundreds of samples After the mid 1990s, lawsuits and legal changes meant that musicians had to get permission. They had to pay for licensing of samples. And samples are still very common in music today, but they're much sparser. A modern song might be built around one or two recognizable riffs. Back in the late 80s and early 1990s, albums like Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet or the Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique were stitched together from literally hundreds of samples. I started this lecture with uh, Puff Daddy's song all about the Benjamins because it's such a nice encapsulation of the 90s ethos. It's all about money. It's all about the Benjamins. But musically or politically, I would take P.E. or the Beasties over P. Diddy any day. Another way of thinking about 1990s culture is that America discovered or rediscovered its own diversity in the 90s. And this made some people happy and it made some people unhappy, but it was undeniable. Immigration rose to a new peak in this period. With the scrapping of the old racial quotas in 1965, the makeup of that immigration changed. So half of the new immigration in the 90s and 2000s was from Latin America, and about a quarter of it was from Asia. Latinos became the largest minority group in the United States in these years. Asian immigrants, immigrants from the Caribbean, Africans, people from the Middle East, were all remaking, remixing the American identity. Multiculturalism became a buzzword in the 1990s. The idea is not actually new. The first expressions of this idea come from back in the progressive era when they called it cultural pluralism. Uh, But this idea that diversity was America's strength, the ideal of preserving different cultures within a larger, still unified society. Yes, people fought about this and they groused about it, but the long-term trends seemed unmistakable. Increased toleration of racial difference, of different cultures, of interracial dating and marriage, of different sexualities, I'm illustrating these ideas with a series of famous ads uh, for Benetton, the United Colors of Benetton ads. And you know that when when it's safe enough for companies to make ads about something that indicates a level of cultural acceptance. The gay rights movement, uh, which appeared in its modern activist form in the late 1960s and was modeled like many other movements on the civil rights movement. In the 1980s and 90s, turned its attention to combating the AIDS epidemic, which I talked about last time. Fighting that disease and fighting the stigmatization and the prejudice and the ignorance that let the AIDS epidemic go unchecked for so long, fighting that fight made the gay movement a national force. It also brought together the gay men and lesbian women's movements. Before, they had kind of been on separate tracks, separate communities with their own uh, movements. But now in the 90s, people reconceptualized what they called a queer identity, challenging binaries like gay and straight, male and female. And the acceptance of homosexuality and increasingly of other sexualities really is one of the most profound changes in American cultural attitudes in the last few decades. When people talk about the 1990s and indeed the 1920s, they often talk about a culture war. And the term generally implies a fight between a forward thinking side of the culture and a backward reactionary side of the culture. You can certainly see the 1990s or the 1920s that way, if you wish. This cartoon shows a Republican elephant. Remember, the elephant is a symbol of the Republican Party. Appropriating Bill Clinton's slogan, It's the economy, stupid, was the mantra of Clinton's campaign in 1992. It, was, it, was, it wasn't the slogan. It was what they told themselves to remind themselves to focus like a laser on the economy. So the point of the cartoon is that the Republicans don't want to talk about the economy. They want to talk only about culture war. And I think one reason that conservative Republicans took up the banner of culture war issues in the 90s is that there was not that much distance between them and the Democrats on economic issues. As I've said before, when two sides agree on one thing, they have to find something else to argue about. And in the 1990s, both of the two big parties were pro-business, pro-globalization, pro-free trade. Both parties wanted to cut taxes. Both parties wanted to cut welfare. So cultural fights took the place of classically political ones. And Republicans found that their best way to mobilize voters was around cultural issues like abortion, sexuality, gun ownership. This also, I think, explains the... Clinton Lewinsky scandal and the attempt to impeach Bill Clinton. Or, not the attempt, he he was impeached. Before becoming president, Clinton had been involved in a complex real estate deal called Whitewater. And there were always allegations of corruption or wrongdoing there. But after years of dogged investigation, Republicans could find no evidence of wrongdoing by Clinton. But in the process of that investigation, they did discover that Clinton had a sexual affair with Monica Lewinsky, who was a young intern working for him at the White House. And Bill Clinton denied the affair at first, which led to a long, lurid investigation of every aspect of his relationship with her. The Lewinsky affair, like the culture war generally, was, you know, I think a kind of, a lot of sound and fury that didn't signify too much. I've talked over the last few weeks about the breakdown of the old liberal consensus, the political center of the 1940s and 50s, and the rise of a new left and a new right. You can see the 1990s as a culture war, but you can also see it as a truce. In the 1980s and 90s, the new right conservatives won control of the economy. The economy was organized on free market laissez-faire principles. The fact that Clinton and the Democrats embraced Reaganite policies in the 1990s really illustrates that. But at the same time, as the new right won control of the economy, I would say the new left won control of the culture. And what we see in the 90s and after is a permissive, expressive culture, a multicultural culture, a do your own thing culture, uh, united colors of Benetton culture. Yes, social conservatives were always there getting angry about stuff, but the culture kept liberalizing anyway. Now, if you're a little bit conspiratorial, you might say, What do the new left and the new right have in common? What does a free market laissez-faire economy have in common with a permissive consumer culture? Well, they are both good for business. And so you might ask, how much difference is there or was there between the rebels and the squares? How useful are these labels, new left and new right? Capitalism likes to pretend that its demands are choices. And this rhetoric about the democratic power of choice, the allegedly freeing power of consumerism, was never more powerful and triumphant than in the roaring 90s. But if the two sides of the culture war are just brands you can choose from, like Mac versus PC, or Pepsi versus Coke, or Rebels versus Squares, what's the difference? And if we were in a room together right now, while I was saying that part, I would have walked in front of this slide so that I was standing between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, gesturing to the cool Apple CEO on the one hand and the nerdy Microsoft CEO on the other. Pretending that there is some kind of cultural divide here obscures the fact that what we're really looking at is two tech billionaires with everything in common. So you might say, who really won the alleged culture war? Who profited and who really is in charge? I leave that question for you to ponder. Thanks very much for watching. And I'm living that, whole life we push weight uh-huh. Fuck the state, 10 fuck holes in Penn State Listen close, it's Francis, the player mantis Attack with the map, my left hand spit Right hand grip on the whip, for the smooth getaway Player haters, get away, On my lead will spray Squeeze off, till I'm empty, don't tempt me Only to hell I send thee. all about the Benji squad.